0: All right, while everybody is uh, finding their seats, just a reminder, announcements, the uh, annual men's campout was canceled, and that was because when I was been watching the Weather Channel and other uh, weather guessers, they were saying that projecting 90% chance of rain for Patterson, heavy thunderstorms for tomorrow. And if you watch the radar this evening at 6 o'clock, that slot between roughly uh, Katy to Columbus is getting a lot of rain that's streaming up, and they've already had some showers there. And tomorrow is supposed to be a heavy thunderstorm, so I didn't think everybody wanted to go out and camp in the mud. So we'll try again uh, next year. Also, information about the just reminding people the DC trip to the Bible Museum. Israel trip now as we're getting closer we're getting closer within six months so I'm working on some other things to get that everything squared away and hopefully have some other announcements of things we're going to do uh, in Washington DC so um, the other thing is the Samaritan's Purse Christmas boxes information is out in the uh, fellowship hall how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose is just simply to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. We're to be walking by the Spirit, and that shows that fellowship is an active, ongoing concept, not just a passive, static position. We're to be walking by the Spirit. When we sin, we're not walking by the Spirit anymore. We're walking according to the sin nature, so when we confess sin instantly, we are cleansed. That's an important word, and we'll see it tonight in our study on atonement. We're cleansed, of all unrighteousness only when we're in a position of having been cleansed do we have that right relationship or fellowship with God so after a few moments of silent prayer then I will open in prayer let's pray our father we're thankful we can come together this evening to fellowship around your word Father, we love you, we love your word, we desire to know you through your word, and the only way to know you and to grow and mature as believers is to learn your word and to have it change the way we think and the way we live. Father, we're thankful we have this time to be challenged in our thinking, to come to understand some of the important teaching of scripture that is uh, often misunderstood. Often it is not probed, it is not explained, it is just taught as if somehow people know what is what it says. Help us to understand this concept of atonement and how important it is for understanding your magnificent grace and the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. And it has been about a month since we were here because the intervening weeks involved uh, my absence due to vacation, and during which time we covered Psalm 19, and then I covered that last week to bring that sub-series to a conclusion. So tonight we're going back to understanding uh, this doctrine or teaching of Scripture, called substitutionary atonement now before i left we talked about substitutionary what does that mean and the idea that christ substituted for us and that's pictured in all of the old testament sacrifices where the animal that is sacrificed would bear the sin of the person who was being sacrificed ritually would bear that because of course The blood of bulls and goats, as the writer of Hebrews says, cannot take away sin. So we talked about substitutionary, and then last time we talked about atonement, and part of what we covered last time was to uh, understand some of the wrong views of atonement over the uh, early church and up through the medieval period, and of the various different ways in which atonement was approached, there was only one that got got it cl- got close and that was Anselm around 1000 AD and yet it wasn't just locked down right he wasn't right on target and it wasn't really until you get into the reformation period following Martin Luther and John Calvin Ulrich Zwingli the leaders of the the, uh, Reformation, John Knox in Scotland. And in the 1500s, this was really came to be understood uh, much more. As we're studying through 1 Peter, they come to this explanation in 1 Peter 3.18. This is really fundamental. On Sunday morning, a lot of you were here Sunday morning, I talked about Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane to the Father to let this cup passed from me and we connected that back to Matthew 20 where Jesus had said to the disciples after uh, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said uh, I want my boys to be sitting on your left and right hand in the kingdom and uh, Jesus said well they can only do that if they're willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. And that's such that's important. And <clears throat> when we get into the full development here in one Peter three eighteen, there's discussion of baptism here. We're talking about Christ's suffering on the cross. And I think the backdrop for understanding some of this is going back to that discussion related to uh, Christ's payment for sin. His it's not his death on the cross and it's interesting that when we get into Peter Peter doesn't use the word death that he doesn't say Christ died for our sins that's very specific he wants to use a more general term that can transfer to us by way of application so he doesn't say Christ died for our sins because we can't do that. We can't emulate that. But Christ suffered unjustly for our sins. That's the theme of Peter, is this undeserved suffering, and that just as Jesus' suffering was undeserved, so when we face undeserved suffering, then we are to follow in Christ's example. And so this is what he's bringing out in this verse, but we need to break down these ideas that are here so we understand them more completely for christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit and then it's going to continue but we want to look at the phrase and we have looked at the phrase once for sins the phrase the just for the unjust and notice the purpose clause there, the statement that he might bring us to God. This ta- brings to our mind the idea of reconciliation, to be restored to the original relationship God had with uh, human beings in the Garden of Eden. And before sin ever cast its shadow on the human race, and before there was spiritual death, we were united with God, now there's separation. So that reconciliation is what means priest. That is so much a part of the idea of atonement. And we talked about that a little bit in the past. So the words once, once for all, the Greek word hapax, which means only one time. He died only one time for sins. And I really thought about this a lot when we were on vacation in Italy because we probably visited well over 25 different churches. And, of course, those weren't Protestant churches. They were not Greek Orthodox, which is just as bad as Roman Catholic in this area. They're Roman Catholic churches. And I just about got tired of seeing the artwork that depicts Mary as the queen of heaven and uh, because it's about the deification of Mary. And it's often observed that the and and I the Catholics don't necessarily say this, but this is what what Protestants always criticize Catholics for It's because the Mass is an ongoing sacrifice. The crucif the Catholic crucifix always depicts Jesus on the cross, whereas Protestant uh, Protestant cross Jesus is not on the cross because it's making the point that it's a once for all death. Now I also think that maybe that pre- that criticism might be pressed a little more because a lot of the artwork was designed to focus people's attentions on certain things and I think there is a value in focusing on Christ on the cross because it gets it should be used if it's done correctly, and I don't think it was through much of that time, is to focus our attention on what is going on when Jesus was on the cross. What is happening? Why is Jesus being on the cross important? And that's when the penalty is paid. Now, the empty cross... Reminds us of resurrection. It reminds us that it's completed, but it also reminds us of resurrection. And resurrection, the New Testament seems to be mostly oriented as it is in Romans uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, in emphasizing the new life that we have in Christ. So we'll get into all of that. It's all related to baptism by the Spirit. We'll get into it. Touch it tonight, touch it in the coming verses, and it's part of this passage so Christ suffered once for sin it's not ongoing which is what you have in the Roman Catholic Mass their idea of transubstantiation what that means Protestants don't understand this stuff we just have knee jerk reactions Uh, what transubstantiation means you can't understand it without understanding Aristotelian categories in Aristotelian categories everything that is material has is made up of two categories two things one is substance the other is attributes now if you look at let's see here this bottle of water you can't see the substance of it you can see its color you can see its height you can see its width you can see what it contains but the substance is invisible it's it's the attributes are what give it any kind of form or shape or color or temperature all of that are part of the attributes so substance is something that is unseen almost immaterial in the term transubstantiation you have substance that is transformed that's what transubstantiation means so you get the bread And the bread, the substance, which you don't see, you just see the attributes. The substance changes into the body of Christ. And in the cup, you just see the wine. It's red. It's liquid. The substance that you can't see is what's transformed. So this is the idea of transubstantiation, that the bread in the cup in the Lord's table is the underlying invisible substance is what is changed. So you can't see a change. That's their doctrine. That's what that means. But in, the, in their view of the Mass, Jesus is crucified every time they have the Mass. It's not once for all. And in biblical Christianity, we have it right here Christ suffered once. For sins, and the word there for sins is not a term of substitution. It's the uh, preposition peri, which means with reference to sins. He died with reference to sins, in other words, to pay that penalty. Then the substitutionary aspect comes in, and the next phrase, the just for the unjust, and that's the preposition on the right, who pair. Sometimes there's another preposition uh, that is used, but this is the primary one that is used for uh, substitution. So this is what has introduced our topic, and it's always referred to in theology as substitutionary atonement. We have to ask that question, what atonement is, because it's not a word used in the New Testament. You can look from Matthew to Revelation, you won't find it. It's an Old Testament word, an Old Testament concept. And in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 6, we see the phrase related to bringing the trespass offering as a basis for making atonement. And the verb there is this verb, kafar. It's in the pl tense, which is an intensified form of the meaning of the word, whichever the verb appears in that stem. And it has the idea, it's, and I pointed this out last time, in older. Uh, older understandings the idea of kafar was to cover there are two words that are spelled and sound alike in hebrew kafar and kafar there is the kafar that relates to the ark when uh, noah put used bitumen and pitch to seal it and it was covered and then there is the word that's used for atonement and for many years it was thought they were the same word because they're homophones But it's been demonstrated that they come from different roots, and that's demonstrable by looking at other Semitic languages. So you have the word make atonement, and the noun also, here in Exodus 30.10, you have the sin offering of atonement there. It's a noun. Aaron shall make atonement, that's the verb, upon its horns, that's on the altar once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. So that's what happened on the day of atonement. Uh, once a year shall make atonement, that's the verb again, uh, upon it throughout all your generations. It's most holy, that is, it's set apart to the Lord. This is the noun, it's used in the plural, and it has the idea, notice, of atonement, but also the idea of cleansing, forgiving, and wiping, uh, wiping clean. In Leviticus 4.20, the same verb, verb is used. And so we need to ask this question, what does this mean? So we're going to study what the Bible teaches about substitutionary atonement. This time we're emphasizing the atonement aspect, not the substitutionary aspect. Now, just by way of review, we saw that there were certain key ideas in the early church related to atonement they did understand something about that it was a penalty sometimes you'll hear that word uh, penal substitution it's paying a penalty as opposed to last time we talked about abelard's view of, of moral influence you had the moral example view and you also had uh, the the governmental view of the atonement. These, these were not penal substitutionary views. This is where Jesus is somehow demonstrating the justice and righteousness of God, and that should motivate us to live for God. It always leads to a works-based salvation. But in the early church, they understood that a penalty was paid. They just thought that that penalty was paid to Satan. We call that the ransom to Satan view. Second, they clearly understood substitution. They just didn't analyze it and develop it as it is later in the Reformation. They understood that Jesus dies in the place of sinners, but they're just quoting Scripture. He dies the just for the unjust. They don't take it out and analyze it and explain it. And that's typical of the early church in the the second, third, and fourth centuries. And when they did finally start analyzing things, it's like, Well, who is Jesus and what's his relationship to the Father? Is he fully God or is he created sometime in eternity past? And so they had to work out the deity of Jesus. That's resolved and articulated in the uh, Nicene Creed in 325. Then they had to decide what Jesus was before he came, uh, what Jesus was when he came. Those things are all worked out in the great Christological controversies that dominated the 4th and 5th centuries, concluding in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. I mentioned that, we covered that the last time. Third thing, they understood that the work was directed to the Father, although that's not really worked out consistently because they still predominantly went with this ransom to Satan view, so there's a lot of fuzziness that's not clarified. Tertullian, who is the? Uh, he's a uh, early church father, late second century. He lived in North Africa, and he was came out of a cult at the time called Montanism, which was sort of a proto-charismatic type of of uh, version of Christianity. But he's a good thinker in some areas, and he gave us the word Trinitas, which coined that word. Nobody had ever used that before. So anybody after Tertullian could think about the Godhead as a trinity. That vocabulary term crystallized what the relation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did in ways the Apostle Paul couldn't articulate it, because he never used the word trinity. That always surprises people we have a richer more precise theological vocabulary today that's developed through church history and we can actually think more precisely about some things than the apostles did or at least from what they wrote because they didn't have those technical vocabulary words and so tertullian introduces the idea that it's related to propitiation And so he begins to develop what Paul said about propitiation and that the atonement is a satisfaction uh, of God. Irenaeus (coughs) had a recapitulation view, didn't catch on for very long, but he does emphasize the idea that it's a penalty and that it's substitutionary. So (coughs) what we said was the understanding of the atonement like everything else in the early church is simple it's not complex it's not analyzed they're mostly just repeating the words and phrases of scripture without really explaining what they meant and by the time you get to the middle of the third century around 250 because of the influence of origin and much uh, in the next century Augustine There's this emphasis on allegorical interpretation, so a lot of this gets lost, and it's not recovered until the Reformation when you go back to a literal interpretation. So quickly, we just looked at the ransom to Satan view. We looked at Irenaeus and his recapitulation theory of the atonement, and Abelard and his moral encouragement view, and connected that to the Grodian view of the atonement and the example view of the atonement. The main idea being substitution, as articulated somewhat weakly by Anselm, and that's the view we hold as substitutionary atonement. Now our question, what's the atonement? Where does it come from? This idea, as I've I've already started explaining it, is kaphar, is a word that means literally to make atonement. Well, what does that mean? Where do you get this word atonement? We'll look at this in just a minute. But the idea of kafar is a word that means to um, to cleanse, to wipe clean the idea of forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. It's to erase something. It's to wipe it clean. You write it on the <clears throat> on the chalkboard, or you write write it on a uh, uh, whiteboard. And you just wipe it off and it's empty. It's, and, and what we'll learn is that this the words for forgiveness have this same idea of eradicating a debt. It definitely has this economic idea. It's used that way of just canceling a debt that is, that is owed. It is usually categorized as meaning to atone for or to make expiation. I think expiation is a good word, but it's antiquated and people don't understand what that means anymore. Uh, make amends for something, to free from sin, uh, to purify. There's that idea of cleansing again, to effect a ransom for. This is the, classic, the dictionary of classical uh, Hebrew the Septuagint the Greek translation that the rabbis made of the Hebrew Old Testament translates kafar many many times with either katharizo which is the verb form or katharismos which is the noun that means to purify to purge or to cleanse in BDB which is an older lexicon came out in 1918 the one most people use it says perhaps cover, that goes to that other word, but primarily related to the Arabic cognate for wiping clean. It's a strong visual word. In fact, the uh, Akkadian word, which is also a cognate, has this same, uh, same idea. It's the idea of something being wiped away, um, it, it communicates this idea that, that something has been canceled or written, written over. So that's the picture of atonement. Whereas the English word atonement was, was coined to express this idea, but it really seems to emphasize reconciliation more. It's the idea of, as we'll see, at one minute. There's a, um, some of you may have seen this, some of you may have one. It's called the Complete Word Study Bible, where you have numbers related to Strong's Numbers and Strong's Concordance. And it's put together by a Greek, native Greek-speaking Greek scholar named Spiros Zodiades. And it's called this Complete Word Study Dictionary. And he has, I like him because he he sort of splits the middle before the over, overly simplified de- definitions you have in Strong's Concordance or Vine's Expository Dictionary of, of the New Testament and Old Testament, and and the more technical scholarly sources like Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, and some of those. And as he defines kafar, he brings out these ideas. It's of supreme theological importance in the Old Testament as it is central to an Old Testament understanding of the remission of sins. Now, remission just means forgiveness. So if you're going to understand what the Bible says about how we're forgiven of sin, we have to understand atonement that's critical to it. He also says down at the bottom. He says it is therefore employed to signify the cancellation or writing over of a contract, and it's used that way in Isaiah twenty-eight eighteen. Now keep that in mind. The idea of canceling something, because when we get into this a little further tonight, we're going to get into Colossians two twelve through fourteen, and uh, in those verses we have the idea that on the cross Christ. Cancelled the decree that was set against us, so that what's being portrayed there in Colossians two twelve to fourteen is how forgiveness was established on the cross. What happened there? So about four points on a, four or five points on atonement. It comes from the English phrase at one mint, the idea of bringing two things together at one mint. And it emphasized reconciliation. That's one word that's used in the Bible to describe what happened on the cross. We have peace with God. The barrier is, is wiped out. That doesn't mean you're saved. It means Christ paid the penalty for sin, and the barrier is no longer a problem. <clears throat> the blood sacrifice, which is very much a part of the Day of Atonement, relates to the payment price, redemption. So we see reconciliation is related to to atonement, to Kafar. Redemption is related to Kafar. Third, when you look at what happens on the Day of Atonement, let me just rehearse it briefly. We'll get there in just a minute, but there's two goats that are taken. One is sacrificed and the blood is put on the Ark of the Covenant. And the other one, the priest, puts his hand on the animal substitutionary and recites the sins of Israel, and that uh, scapegoat is then taken so far out in the wilderness he can't find his way back, picturing the fact that God completely removes the sin from us, and that's what forgiveness does. So when the blood is put on the mercy seat, that's a picture of of, uh, propitiation because that's the whole point of this word, uh, hilascarion, that is used in Romans 3 by by Paul to talk about propitiation. Fourth, because God is propitiated or satisfied God's righteousness and justice. When he looked at the cross and Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, unblemished, sinless, pays the penalty, the justice of God is, the righteousness of God is satisfied and the justice of God declares that the sin penalty has been paid so you have reconciliation redemption propitiation and in the last category expiation and forgiveness these are all part of what is demonstrated in those Old Testament day of atonement sacrifices so what we see is that Atonement itself has many facets, that the core, you had this Hebrew word kafar, but in places it speaks of redemption, in other places expiation, the canceling of the debt, in other places propitiation, the satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice, in other places the bringing together of those that were at one time enemies, and the forgiveness So all of that's part of atonement. So that's what that word means. But today, it's sad today, because of biblical illiteracy and theological illiteracy, people don't understand these big words that were used in the King James Bible, and this has been going on for 30 years. So translations, the more and more modern translations, don't use these words because they're not uh, user-friendly to anybody who's been educated uh, in the last 30 or 40, 50 years even. So we lose the complexity because we just want simplicity. Now, <clears throat> the Old Testament gives us pictures of the atonement It gives us these pictures in the Day of Atonement, which is described in Luke chapter 16, which is a very complex ceremony. It involves special priestly garments. It involves five different sacrificial animals. There's a bull that has to be sacrificed for the cleansing of the priest. There's the two goats that are used and also... um, There are two rams that are sacrificed. There's certain specific incense that is used, and there's the purification or cleansing of the uh, holy place where all of this is going going to take place. At the very center of the whole ceremony, the whole ritual, is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is a box. That's what ark means. It just means a box. It's a wooden box made of uh, acacia wood, which is an extremely dense, hard, impermeable wood. Now, why do you think God had them use acacia wood? It pictures the humanity of Christ that is sinless. It's not penetrated by sin or corruption. So you have this acacia wood that is used, and it's covered over with gold, and the gold pictures the deity of Christ. So you have in all of these things, all of these uh, <clears throat> pieces of furniture in the in the tabernacle that use wood, acacia wood covered with gold. It symbolizes that hypostatic union of the God-Man. Inside the ark was placed the broken tablets of the law, indicating human sin and then you had two angels on top that represent the justice and righteousness of god the blood would be placed on the mercy seat that's what this is called it's called the kafaret from the same word kafar it's the mercy seat and so justice and righteousness look down on the blood which is signified a death to for the purification of sin and it's satisfied so it's a wonderful picture of how God's character is satisfied by our <clears throat> by, by the sacrifice of, of Christ. So you see it here in this picture. Here's the priest bringing the blood sacrifice to the mercy seat. And over here you have the other goat that is being <clears throat> uh, taken out into the wilderness where the sins are removed. So it's a picture of forgiveness, of sin forgiven, and sin forgotten. Now, to get into some technicality here, we need to turn to a New Testament passage. I I love this passage. I think this passage is foundational to understanding forgiveness, but I also think that it is rarely handled well. It is, unfortunately, superficially handled because it's difficult to explain without getting into a lot of technicality in Greek grammar. And a lot of people just can't, I'll put half of you to sleep tonight probably, but this is how we have to break this down to really understand what is going on here. And in fact, I just have a few verses to look at ahead of time as a backdrop to understanding Colossians 2. In Colossians one thirteen through 13-14, Paul says, He, meaning the Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness, that because we were slaves to sin, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That doesn't mean we're in the kingdom yet. It's proleptic. That means it has to do with the future. The kingdom will come once we're saved, we're in the kingdom. It's not present now. The messianic kingdom is the idea, and the Messiah is now not crowned yet. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. According to Revelation 3.20, he is seated at his Father's throne, not on his throne, and he does not receive the the, the, the crown until the end of the tribulation period, just before he descends to the earth. That's pictured in daniel chapter 7 when the son of man comes to the uh comes to the ancient of days and is given the kingdom hasn't happened yet he is seated now and it won't be until the future when he's given and then he will come to the earth so but when that happens we will be in his kingdom we will be with the king we are the bride of the king And then in verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood. Now, that comes out of that Old Testament picture of the purchase of sin. We have redemption through his blood. And then there's this phrase, the forgiveness of sins. And then, I think I was taking some verses out. This last phrase shouldn't even be there. That was not... erased like it should have been for redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins and so in what sense though are we forgiven by the blood of christ on the cross in what sense are we forgiven when christ died on the cross in a.d. 30 Most people think they're not forgiven until they trust in Christ. But what we're seeing in Colossians is there's a sense in which we are forgiven, not just we as believers, but we as Gentiles, because that's the backdrop for Colossians. He's talking to them as believers, but it would apply to all mankind. So this is the point of verses 13 and 14. Then we skip down to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. That's the fullness of deity. So he had all of the attributes of God. He was fully God, undiminished deity. And by him to reconcile, so here we bring in this other idea of reconciliation, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, that is by Christ, whether things on earth or things in the heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, the idea there is that the cross made peace, actually, in history, in A.D. 33, not when you and I trusted Jesus as our Savior, but in A.D. 30, that is a transaction that takes place on the cross, and in that transaction, there's peace established between man and god so that sin is no longer the issue the barrier between man and god is eradicated that doesn't mean human beings are saved it means the sin problem is solved and it's not the issue not you'll hear all these uh, evangelists who will uh, twist everybody's guilt and talk about all the sins that you've committed well that's not the issue you're spiritually dead. That is the issue. You need to understand sin from the vantage point of the fact that that you, you're spiritually dead. But you've made... Uh, Christ made the peace through the blood of his cross. So there you have the idea of his death. The blood always speaks of his death. You have reconciliation. You have peace. You know, in the previous passage in verses 13 and 14, we had... Uh, redemption and we had forgiveness all of these relate to the idea of atonement so obviously paul's breaking down these these uh, categories verse uh, 21 and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled the body of his flesh through death. Now, that reconciliation didn't occur when the Colossians trusted in Christ as Savior. The reconciliation happens objectively at the cross as part of, related to propitiation. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. See, he doesn't say he has reconciled by your faith in Jesus. He said he has reconciled in the body of his flesh Christ's flesh when he died on the cross to present you holy and blameless and above reproach that's the idea in the purpose for Christ's death is to be able to present us holy and blameless before God now that lays the foundation in the introduction of Colossians so let's turn the page to Colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2 and we're going to look at these verses, 11, 12, 13, and 14. In him, who's the him? Jesus. In him, so that phrase in Paul often relates to our position in Jesus. So to have position in Jesus means you have had to have Already, even if it's only a millisecond, a nanosecond before, you have trusted in Christ as Savior. And by being in Him, something happens in that transaction of being placed in Him. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 6 3 through 5. At that instant that you and I trust in Christ as Savior, we are identified legally with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That idea of identification is baptism, and that's <clears throat> the description of the baptism of of the Holy Spirit in Romans 3 through 5. See, this is all fundamental to what's going on in 1 Peter uh, later on. I mean, in, in the next few verses after <clears throat> the one we're studying. So, we're... Um, In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. I don't have this up on a slide, but I have it summarized a little bit right here at the top of this slide. In him you were circumcised. What does that mean? That means at that instant of faith, something happened. It's a spiritual circumcision, which is alluded to in the Old Testament. It's not the the circumcision made with hands that's significant, but the spiritual circumcision. Because removal of the flesh in circumcision is a picture of the removal of the power of the sin nature. And so Paul says, in him, you were also, it's past tense. When did it happen in your life? It happened at salvation. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So it's not physical, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual transaction where the sin nature's power is removed. That's Romans 6, all of Romans 6. Because we're no longer under the uh, tyranny of the sin nature, we can now walk in newness of life. So it's a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh. That's the idea of removing that authority of the sin nature, that tyranny of the sin nature. We still have it, but we no longer are forced to follow it. By the circumcision of Christ. So it's that circumcision of Christ. He is the one who does that in that spiritual transaction that we call the baptism by the holy spirit and then in the next verse it goes on buried with him in baptism now this is where it starts to get a little bit confusing this is where your eyes are going to glaze over if you look at that in english buried with bapt with him in baptism buried looks like a like a finite verb but it's not okay that's why I've underlined it here. These verbs that are underlined all through this chart are participles in the Greek. Now, participle isn't a finite verb. It is saying something about the finite verb. We call uh, a participle is a um, verbal adjective. That means that sometimes it acts like an adjective. The Greeks said that an adjective was a noun that just said something about another noun. So when you talk about the black robe, black is usually thought of as an adjective. It's a color, but it's a noun. Black is a noun, and black modifies another noun, robe. So they understood this, and this is very much a part of understanding how language works. So when you say something... In a, as a as a noun, it's modified by an adjective, but this is a verbal adjective, which means a participle can also function as a with a verbal idea. It usually modifies a verb, and that's what's called an adverb. So all of these are adverbial. You know that in Greek very objectively because it doesn't have an uh, a, an article associated with it. Article always separates out a noun function. So. it's saying something about the verb. But what's it saying? Now, this is where it gets a little subjective because there are about eight different uses of the participle, adverbial participle. It can be saying something about cause. It can be saying something about time, which is the idea of after or before or when. It can be saying something about means, that is, the means by which something is done. It can be saying something about manner. But there's nothing objective in the text that tells you this is a, adver- this is an adverbial participle of means or it's a adverbial participle of cause. You have to sort of what I call fill, play fill-in-the-blank, process of elimination, You might look at a participle and and translate it by means. You go, that doesn't make sense at all. So now you translate it as because of, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And so that's how you go through that process. And sometimes it can be, it can make sense in either of a couple of different options, but usually they're pretty clear. We'll see an example of that in just a minute. So in verse 12, he says that buried with him in baptism. Well, The main verb is you were circumcised. So how does the phrase, you were buried with him in baptism, describe circumcision? Well, that's interesting because it probably has the idea, as we'll see, of cause or or time. You were circumcised because you were buried with him in baptism. That might work. Or you were circumcised when you were buried with him in baptism. Now that makes a lot of sense because the baptism by the Holy Spirit is what's being described by that term circumcision of the flesh. So what is um, being said here is you were circumcised when you were buried with him in baptism or you were circumcised by being. That would be mean. So it's more than likely it's either temporal or it's Uh, means by being uh, buried with him in baptism in or by which that indicates means by which that refers back to baptism by this baptism by which baptism you were raised together with him that's another that's another participle there so by which baptism you were raised together with uh, with him, so that is talking about the the means there of it's that by that baptism you're raised with him now, how does that take place? So at the instant we're saved, we're raised together with Christ, we have that newness of life that's Romans chapter six, and then it goes on in verse thirteen. Now, look at this in your Bible. You should be making some of these notes and drawing some lines between some of these words. It says, and you being dead. So this is another participle. And it could be a participle of cause, because you were dead. But it's probably a participle of time, when you were dead. Or it's what's called a concessive participle, though you were dead. In other words, what it's emphasizing, and we know this because the main verb is down here. It's an aorist tense. And you have an heiress participle, so that either happens at the same time, or what this is describing is your condition just before you were made alive together with him, which is probably what what it's doing and you would be you were dead, you were and had been dead, not physically because they were still alive, so this has to be spiritual death, which is separation from god and because of ephesians 2 1 which says the same thing and this verse we know that every person is born spiritually dead separated from god they're not born physically dead they're born spiritually dead and so what paul is describing here is the condition of every human being until they believe in christ as savior so he says and you when you were dead or though you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh now the reason he uses uncircumcision of the flesh instead of sins is because he's emphasizing that the sin nature hasn't been broken yet you're still under that control of the sin nature but what he did was he made you alive together with him wow we are made alive Now, there's something else that happens. How does he make us alive? Now, there's a lot of dimensions to that question we can't answer, but the next phrase answers some of that. We have another participle for forgiveness. Now, how does he forgave relate to he made you alive? Well, we have the main verb to make alive. Here's an aorist tense. That's a simple past tense and the participle here is an aorist participle. Now there's a basic rule in Greek. If your finite verb, if, if it's a aorist participle, it precedes the action in the main verb. If it's a present participle, it's at the same time as the action of the main verb. If it's a future participle, it comes after the time of the action in the main verb. But if you have an aorist verb and an aorist participle, it can either be that the, partic- that the participle came with first and then the main verb, or they could happen at the same time. But context tells us that this idea of forgiveness is the canceling of sin, which happened when he nailed it to the cross. So because of the context, what we say is this this action of forgiveness took place before he made you alive. He made you alive together with him, either by forgiving, when he forgave, or because he forgave. It could be, since it's this precedes that, it would be not when, but after. I need to correct that slide. It would be after he forgave you all, trans- all trespasses. There is a forgiveness in 33 AD that is enacted at the cross sin that and that's what's described in the next verse sin is the pen, sin is canceled okay it's eradicated there's true forgiveness for every single human being every muslim every hindu every atheist every works based jehovah's witness or mormon there is forgiveness that happened for each one in 33 AD. Now, what we see here is <clears throat> what happens down here. Because he had canceled. That is an again an Aorist a participle, which means it precedes the action up here. And it's causal. He made you alive together because because he forgave you or after he forgave you of all trespasses because he had canceled that sin that's the beginning having wiped out or canceled the handwriting of requirements he, he did it when he nailed it to the cross okay I just told you what we're going to say now I'm going to go through the details again try to get it to sink in. This is so important because what this is telling us is that everybody's sins are nailed to the cross in 33 AD and God wipes them out so that sin's not the issue anymore. But that doesn't mean that people are not being born spiritually dead anymore. They are. Because they're born spiritually dead, that's what he talks about here, being made alive together because they're born spiritually dead even though Christ affected forgiveness they have to be born again and that's going to be a second kind of forgiveness so the being dead emphasizes their ongoing condition he has made being dead in your trespasses uh, and the uncircumcision of your sins so it modifies he has made alive and so this present participle of being dead it happens at the same time as the action of the verb. That means at the time that we're made alive, we're spiritually dead. And he, he, in, in an instant in time, he makes us alive together with him. So it could be understood as when you were dead in your trespasses or though you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive. God changes us from dead people to living people so that as John uh, 3.18 says, that we can have life. And John 10, we can have it abundantly. So our status is dead, not physically, but spiritually. That's important. I've had some people say, well, there's really no basis for saying that what happens in Genesis three is they died spiritually, it was physical death. John, I mean Ephesians two one, and Colossians two thirteen tells us that we're born dead. Now he makes us alive, and this is regeneration. He makes it, made us alive together with him. He the Father made us alive together with him the Son. Same thing that said in Ephesians two five. even though we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive. And then he does this in some way it's related to forgiveness. And the word for t- forgiveness here is, you have two words in the Greek. One is aphiemi, which is the word that's used over in John 3.16, that God will, God forgives us. And the other word is this word charizomai. And charizomai is from a root for Grace. It emphasizes the graciousness of the action of forgiveness. But again, notice it's an heiress participle. So it precedes the action of being made alive. Because he had already canceled your trespasses. Now that's that word charizmi. Why do I use the word canceled? Because this is a economic word. It can mean to give freely or graciously. And it's used in Luke 7.42 for canceling a debt, a financial debt. Canceling a sum of money or a debt that is owed. And that's done freely or graciously. So those are not totally separate ideas. And so it comes to mean to forgive or pardon an action. So he made you alive because he had already canceled this debt and he's going to repeat that idea with different words in the next verse so he's forgiven us okay that's out of order forgiven us of all debt so it should be translated because he had already forgiven or canceled or it might be translated after he had already forgiven or canceled i think it Probably because he's made us alive together. Because he had, he's able to do that. Because he had already canceled the sin. <clears throat> now in Greek, as I mentioned a minute ago, you have the primary word for forgiveness is "aphiemi," the verb, or "aphasis," the noun, and it has this idea of letting something go, canceling, remitting something, canceling a debt, pardoning, forgiveness. And the second word that's used is charizami to show favor or kindness it emphasizes the grace basis of forgiveness okay forgiveness is an action of grace so you see that word used in ephesians chapter four that we are to forgive one another as god for christ's sake has forgiven us it emphasizes the grace basis for that it's not based on based on works so then we would translate this, he made, us, made you alive together with him because he had already forgiven or released us or canceled the, our transgressions. And then the next verse begins, by or when he canceled the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. That last part is really important. Because it says that it happened when he nailed it to the cross, not when you believed in 1956 or 1965 or 1980. He did it when Christ died on the cross. That canceled the sin. That was a forgiveness. That's when it were released. So the idea of he is forgiven, charizomai, is directly related to this word, exilepho, which means to wipe out, wipe away, blot out, rub out, erase, eradicate or move, remove. So that cancels out that that debt. We see this all through the Old Testament. Psalm 51:9. This is Paul's prayer, I mean David's prayer of confession. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is the Hebrew word machah. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five, God says, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God's not going to hold it against us. And Acts 3 19, Peter uses this in his sermon. He uses the same word that's used uh, here in, um, in, in Colossians chapter 2, and he says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out christ blotted them out at the cross but there's obviously another way in which it's personalized when we trust in christ as savior so there's at least two different kinds of forgiveness here one that wipes out the debt of sin at the cross and another that is applied to the individual when they believe in jesus this is based on what the translations are a little difficult it's a handwriting it's a handwritten uh, decree against us and it uses that word dogma which is a has to do with a decree or a set of rules or basically it's an indictment against us for sin that is what's removed and that certificate of debt is then cancelled eradicated wiped out and removed so who's the us he canceled out the decree against us us is talking about all mankind and he's addressing gentiles so it's applying to gentiles he's not saying us believers because if it happens at the cross it applies to all mankind and it was hostile to us it was taken out of the way Skipping ahead, it was taken out of the way, Iro, to lift up or remove it, which is sometimes used in forgiveness passages as well, not to mean forgiveness, but that's what's happened. It's removed. And it's a perfect uh, tense verb, which means it's action that's completed in the past. So it was hostile to us, and he took it out of the way. It's finished. It took it out of the way back in 33, that completed it. So, he did it by nailing it to the cross. That is so critical. That is what, that's the message of the gospel. We have been forgiven. It's established at the cross. Now, it has to be applied to us because we're still spiritually dead. So, when we believe in Jesus, then that forgiveness is applied to us. So, what we see are different categories of forgiveness in the New Testament. First of all, a forgiveness toward God where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. And I call this forensic or courtroom forgiveness. It happened at the cross so that all mankind is forgiven, that certificate of debt is wiped out. The second category is that we are forgiven positionally in Christ. That's that circumcision made without hands, we are forgiven at that point. Ephesians one seven and Colossians 1.14, we have as our possession redemption, the f- forgiveness of sin. That's that forgiveness. It's ours in Christ. But then there's a third salvation, which is, I mean, a third forgiveness, which is experiential forgiveness. And that's what happens when we have disobeyed God and we sinned. Like a child disobeys his parents, there is a, a barrier between the child and the parent that, is, that comes back there is that rapport is broken down. It's not like the barrier of sin, it's just that that rapport is broken down and it has to be restored. And when we confess sin, we're cleansed. That's the emphasis there. It's not confession. You've got to do something to be cleansed from sin at any time after salvation. And so that's first John one nine and then there's relational forgiveness ephesians four thirty two that's chary We forgive one another as God, for christ's sake, has forgiven us. so in conclusion, sin is not the issue at salvation. The individual sin is not the issue at salvation. Your sin is not the issue at salvation it's Christ, and his work on the cross that's the issue. Because he paid the penalty, he canceled the debt. Are you willing to accept that? So second, this does not mean that sin, the sin penalty, and the reality of a person's spiritual death is ignored. Jean Brown and I used to talk about this for hours, for years we worked through this stuff, that I, you don't preach their sin but they do have to understand that because of Adam's original sin they're spiritually dead and that's why they sin it's a sign of their their corruption but that sin's paid for and they need forgiveness you can't preach forgiveness if people don't understand they need it but it's not about making them feel, feel guilty about it and that's uh that and making it an issue the issue is Christ third the focal point is always grace the emphasis is on forgiveness in the sense that christ paid it all at the cross we don't add anything to it whatsoever and the point of application beyond the gospel is that it's paid it's all paid at the cross he solved the greatest problem we'll ever face so he can solve any other problem we face that's the emphasis in atonement it's reconciliation, it's expiation, the debt is canceled. It's redemption, it's paid for. It is forgiveness, it's wiped out. All of those things are part of what is explained in the New Testament, but it doesn't use that word atonement. So now we can go forward in 1 Peter because we understand what is happening here. This is profound. All that we have in Christ and our forgiveness. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study this, to be impressed with how much you've done for us, the the many facets of Christ's work on the cross, that your justice was satisfied, that sin was the penalty for sin, the certificate of debt was canceled. There's forgiveness. It was paid for, redemption And, Father, because of all of this, we are reconciled. We can be reconciled to you because that barrier has been removed. The issue is simply faith alone, trusting alone in Christ, not in Christ plus works or anything else, but only faith in only Christ. And, Father, we pray you will challenge us and we might rejoice in our forgiveness of sin